Lord Jesus, we do uh, thank you for your amazing, marvelous love for us. Lord, it is a grace beyond which we can understand. Uh, it is a grace that we do not deserve. It is a grace that we have not earned. And yet, it is a grace that has found us. It is a grace that has invited us into relationship with you, into relationship with one another, and into a relationship with your world where we serve your purpose and your mission as your kingdom comes on earth as it does in heaven. So Lord, today I pray that you would be at work in us. I pray that you would help us to be uh, receptive to that grace wherever it finds us. I pray, Lord, that you would be pleased as we uh, submit to you not only in reverence and obedience before your word today, but as we then uh, embody that word as we go forth in an ongoing life of worship into our community uh, this coming week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, some of us have a um, uh, relationship with the catechism already. Some of us have studied it. Some of us remember going to class uh, when we were children. Uh, some of us have gone to uh, a class here. I think uh, Wayne Johnson reminded me that he's taught a class on the catechism uh, here in the past. Uh, Brad has done a class here uh, for our teens. Uh, I think Tyler Thompson has done a class on the catechism. Uh, and so this is my shot to piggyback on all of that uh, conversation. The, uh, sometimes if you don't have a background with the catechism, uh, it can be a little bit confusing. What is it? Uh, why do we use this in a Reformed church? What's the purpose of the catechism? And uh, just by way of introduction, I want to say a couple of things about that. First of all, uh, in the Reformed Church, we don't believe that the Catechism is equal to Scripture or replaces Scripture or carries the authority of Scripture. Uh, scripture alone is the basis of our faith. Uh, what the Catechism does do, however, is help us to have access to that Scripture in a unique and a special way. Uh, the Catechism was uh, written uh, in Heidelberg, Germany. It was commissioned out of Heidelberg, Germany uh, in uh, 1562, 1563. Uh, so it's been around a while. And uh, it was commissioned, it was designed as a teaching tool. It was a tool that was given to teachers of the scripture, to preachers of the time. And the invitation was that they could use this as a tool, as a rubric, to help them to teach the truths of scripture and to connect scripture to the challenges of life uh, that Christians were facing in that time. And so it is an instruction manual, basically. Uh, and when you read through the catechism, uh, if you've never looked at it, it's designed with questions and answers. And uh, the question frames an issue, and the answer responds to that issue. And it was designed as a way to help uh, folks approach Scripture in uh, that way. Why do we still use it today? Uh, C.S. Lewis used to talk about the idea of the tyranny of the present moment. And he had this idea that uh, we live uh, in such a way that we think that uh, our, our current thinking our current perspectives, our current issues, and our current needs are the needs that have always been so. And so when we come to Scripture, we ask the questions that are prompted by our needs and by our context and by our issues and by the things that we wonder about. Uh, even the questions that we ask of Scripture are framed from a very peculiar, modern, present moment. And C.S. Lewis says, if we, if we want to... Um, if, if we want to let the full voice of Scripture have its way in us, uh, we have to find ways to break free of that tyranny of the present moment. And a catechism 
helps us to step into a different mindset, a different era, a different context, a different moment in history, and to begin to ask the questions that they were asking then, to think about what was urgent and important to them. And maybe there's a prompt in that, to think about maybe the things that are so important to us to ask of Scripture, maybe our needs and our concerns and our wonderings, aren't the only wonderings and needs and concerns that have ever been, that there are others that have existed, and that we can learn uh, some important things by asking those different kinds of questions. So it is a teaching tool, and it is a, and it is a way to help us to learn to ask different kinds of questions from Scripture. Scripture still provides the answer in the, um, in the, in the, the authority. The way that the Heidelberg Catechism is designed uh, is that it uh, usually comes to us in three parts. Now, I told you I wasn't going to make you do anything today, but this is a really easy one. You know the three parts of the catechism. How is it divided? Three words. They usually alliterate guilt, grace, gratitude. Does that sound familiar? The guilt, grace, gratitude um, sections of the catechism. Sometimes it's called sin, salvation, and service. The idea is that um, first of all, we become aware of the depths of our brokenness, the depths of our sin, uh, the dire situation that we are in. Then we become aware of God's massive plan of grace and restoration. And then out of that awareness of God's grace, which in itself can only be understood in terms of how deep is our sin, uh, uh, as we experience God's grace in those depths of sin, then we respond with a movement of gratitude, of thankfulness. And so, um, interestingly enough, the catechism is divided so that just the first 11 questions and answers, uh, it's not even, right? The first 11 questions and answers deal with the question of sin. Um, the second section, questions 12 through 85, deal with the issue of grace or deliverance or salvation. And then questions 86 to 126, have to do with our response in gratitude, our service to God as thankful, redeemed uh, human beings who stand in his kingdom. The material that the catechism covers is broad and sweeping. Uh, it begins with a survey of the Apostles' Creed. It goes through each of the um, lines, each of the phrases of the creed, and explicates the meaning of each one of those, and then grounds each one of those in a, a whole list of scripture passages. Uh, then it moves to uh, a short discussion of the sacraments, uh, baptism and communion. Then there is an explication of the Lord's Prayer. So it goes through each one of the phrases of the Lord's Prayer, explicates its meaning, and grounds each one of them in a whole list of uh, Scripture passages, and then concludes with an examination of the Ten Commandments. This is the unique Reformed contribution to the understanding of the law. In uh, the Reformation, and the uh, Roman church of the time, the law was used as a uh, source of conviction, right? When I read the law, and we, and we do this, right? We read the law, and we say, oh my goodness, I'm so, I've fallen so short of that. Uh, what will I do? So the law brings us to the end of ourself. The law convicts us. The law is a mirror that shows us our sin. And Calvin embraces that. The reformers embrace that. And the catechism goes one more step, and it says, and because the law is an expression of God's character, because the law expresses the nature of God, 
Uh, it, it, it's expressing, and I think I said this last week, the law is expressing those things that are pleasing to God. And so if we want to live a life of gratitude for the grace that he has shown to us, then the law is a rule of gratitude as well. And when we live our lives uh, increasingly consistent with the character and the, and the emphasis of the law, then our lives are increasingly pleasing uh, to God as we live before him. So that's the overview of the catechism. The question that we're looking at today uh, comes in that second middle section, the section about grace. So this is a, a grace message, and it is a part of the exposition on the Apostles' Creed. And specifically, uh, we're looking at question and answer number 44. And that question and answer uh, from the Creed um, is this. Why does the Creed add, he descended to hell? And this is the answer. To assure me, in times of personal crisis and temptation, that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. As we uh, look at that question and answer, uh, the Catechism then also provides a series of biblical texts that help to ground that thinking in the Scriptures. And so I want to look at just two sort of sweeping passages that give uh, life to that response. Uh, the first one is in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, begin at verse 1, if you want to follow. Who has believed our message? To whom, all, uh, to whom will the Lord reveal his self, uh, saving power? And then this is a passage about what we call the suffering servant. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot sprouting from a root in dry and sterile ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with bitterest grief. We turned our backs on him and, he, and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped and we were healed. All of us have strayed away like sheep. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. From prison and trial, they led him away to his death. But who among the people realized that he was dying for their sins, that he was suffering their punishment? He had done no wrong, and he never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal, and he was put in a rich man's grave. And if the prophetic imagination of the prophet Isaiah gives us this graphic and searing picture of the suffering servant's 
descent to hell. Then the Gospel of Matthew records the first person account of the fulfillment of the prophet's words. Listen to the poignancy of this intimate um, examination of the mind of Jesus. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 36. Then Jesus brought them to an olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, Sit here while I go on ahead to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he began to be filled with anguish and deep distress. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. He went on a little further and fell face down on the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will and not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. And he said to Peter, Couldn't you stay awake and watch with me even one hour? Keep alert and pray, otherwise temptation will overpower you. For though the spirit is willing, the body is weak. And again he left them and he prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away until I drink it, your will be done. He returned to them again and found them sleeping, for they just couldn't keep their eyes open. So we went back to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to his disciples and said, Still sleeping, still resting. Look, the time has come. I, the Son of Man, am betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is here. And then just a couple of chapters forward, the 27th chapter. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. And about 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Ali, Ali, Lema Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus the Apostles' Creed says, descends to hell. It doesn't say that he descends into hell. He descends to hell. And the Catechism understands that to mean that Jesus' entire life is a series of downward steps, a hellish descent, one experience after another. It begins with the incarnation itself, a loss of that face-to-face intimacy with the Father, losing all of the glory and all of the prerogatives of divinity that he enjoyed for all of eternity as a member of the Trinity. The incarnation, he enters into um, the reality of our world. And as Isaiah catalogs one grim experience after the next, crushing grief, fear, searing betrayal, abandonment, rejection, prolonged physical trauma, unjust imprisonment, and an execution that was stigmatized, that was as stigmatized for its 
God-forsaken humiliation as it was for its sheer brutality. And yet he goes further down. Further down because as the Gospels relate, not only did he experience this anguish of body, but he experienced a torment and an anguish in his spirit when he experienced the moment that he dreaded most of all when God turned his face. They sent to help. What do we learn from that? What do we learn from a Jesus who went to the grave? First thing is that it's Jesus' descent to hell that reveals to us the grotesque ugliness of this alien poison that we call sin. It's as if, Isaiah says, the full weight of humanity's sinful brokenness is laid upon him and it crushes him down and down and down and down. The full weight of humanity's fall into sin going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to willful disobedience, all the way back to murderous jealousy, all the way back to rebellion against God, all the way back and in every instance disfiguring every single human relationship. The relationship that we have with God, the relationship that we have with ourselves, the relationship that we have with our creation, the relationship that we have with one another. Every single relationship marred and disfigured by this poison of sin. All the way back, every single drop of human suffering, every moment of parental anguish, every dark depth of terror and loss and hate, the full weight of that sin is laid on Jesus. And Isaiah tells us that it is not God who creates this weight that is laid upon Jesus. It is not Jesus' own sin. It is not sin that God conjures out of nowhere. It isn't God that does that. Isaiah says, it is you and it is me. It is the weight of your sin that crushes Jesus to hell. It is a hell of our making. And the Catechism says that that hell of our making would be our ongoing and defining experience in life if Jesus had not occupied that ground in our place. In other words, if the life and the ministry of Jesus was just about, uh, you, you know, you're pretty good people. You dress up pretty nice, you clean up pretty good, you do good things for people, good parents, you're good grandparents, you're good friends, you're pretty good people. You're like 80% of the way there. And, and Jesus comes along and says, I'm here for you. I've got another 20% and I'll get you over the top. I've, you're just about there. You just need a little help. If that was the case, if Jesus came to make good people better people, we wouldn't need a cross. We wouldn't need a descent to hell. But the Gospels are clear that it isn't just encouragement that we need. 
it isn't just advice that we need. It isn't just some inspiration that we need to get over that last little hoop. The Gospels are clear that what we need is to be rescued from death and sin. We need to be utterly rescued. And so Jesus descends to hell to rescue us from this curse of sin, a curse that is at the root of every hellacious and hateful and hurtful thing that we do and experience. Have you read uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, book, The Great Divorce? Uh, do you remember the story? Lewis talks about a cosmic bus ride. And this is a bus that is taking a load of passengers uh, from time to eternity. And in Lewis's imagination, the bus stops at the gates of hell. And those who are destined to spend their eternity there exit the bus and they have the experience from that vantage point of looking back over their entire life. Every moment, even the very best moments that they thought they had in their life. And they experience even the very best of humanity now as a searing hell. Jesus comes to rescue us from hell. A hell of our own making. A hell of eternity. And what that means is the catechism, the creed, the scriptures, the gospels, tells that there is no hell to which you or I can descend today where Jesus is not already there. There is no experience that you can endure that Jesus has not already endured. There is no diagnosis. There is no sentence. There is no disappointment. There is no loss. There is no fear. There is no hell that you can go to that Jesus has not already gone. It's been a little bit difficult for Tammy and I to talk about all of the aspects of our summer break. Uh, many, many parts of our sabbatical were very good. And some of it was very difficult. As a family, uh, we stood and peered over the edge into that abyss. I'm not in a place to uh, say a whole lot more of the details of that experience. But there were and there are sleepless nights, there are tears, there's nausea in the pit of the gut. And I don't know how deep the hole is. But I do know that when I find out, Jesus is already there. The Catechism asks the question, how deep does your salvation go? How far down does your salvation go? And the answer is that it goes all the way to the pit of hell, all the way to the bottom of the abyss. There is no depth beyond the reach of my Redeemer's embrace. 
In the great divorce, the bus ride continues, and C.S. Lewis has the bus arriving at the gates of heaven. And the passengers who have made the trip to heaven to spend their eternity there exit the bus, and they have an entirely different experience as they look back over their life. The darkest moments, the deepest, blackest, most anguishing experiences of their life, they look back on, and, they're, and, they're, and they get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until they melt away into insignificance. And Jesus is with me in the pit of hell. Everything is different. But Jesus doesn't just go down to the gates of hell to comfort us. He goes there to save us. He goes there to rescue us. He goes down in order to bring us up. The very next question of the Catechism asks this question. Question number 45. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? And this is the answer. First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness that he won for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already now resurrected to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. I want to focus for just a moment on that middle phrase, this idea that we are already now resurrected to a new life. Do you understand that? Do you hear that? Do you hear the power of that? The resurrected life is not only a future possibility, it is a current reality. It is a now. The resurrected life is not just about a, 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 an eternal, enduring, ongoing, prolonged life. It is about a total change of the quality and character of life that we live today. The objection to that statement, of course, is we've been to funerals. We've been to funerals of those we love. We know that we will die. And the catechism comes and says that our physical death is not an argument against the truth that our resurrected life has already begun. The moment of physical death doesn't change that reality or that promise. Christianity doesn't ever prevent loss. Instead, it promises resurrection. It offers this miracle of the resurrection. Do you remember the story in the Gospels about Lazarus? It's an instructive moment in the life and teaching of Jesus. Lazarus dies. Lazarus is a friend of Jesus. and his loss, his death, pierces the heart of Jesus to the point of bringing tears. When the news reaches Jesus of Lazarus' illness and impending death, the scriptures surprisingly tell us that Jesus tarries. He takes his time. He's in no rush to get to the bedside of his sick friend. And some translations of the scripture go so far as to say that it was because of his great love that he tarried. 
It's as if Jesus was saying, I love you too much to let you think that the best of Christianity, that the best of God's gifts are just a a delay in the dying process. I don't want you to think that that my work is to come alongside of you and to comfort you as you walk through this death. I want you to understand that my work is to reverse that death, to overcome it completely and finally. So that has no more power. And so Jesus comes to the tomb. And he doesn't go and sit and comfort the bereaved. He doesn't spend time normalizing death. He hates death. Instead, he reverses it. And he calls Lazarus up out of that grave. Deep? How far down does your salvation go? It goes all the way down to the pit of hell. All the way down. All the way down. And how high does your salvation soar? How high does it ascend? How how big is it? It goes all the way up to the gates of heaven. You're already raised up. You're already seated with Jesus next to the Father. In an important and enduring way, you and I have already begun to enjoy this new life from God from which we will never, 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 never be separated. Do you see, do you see the symmetry of the gospel here? In our deepest hell, Jesus is with us. And in his highest heaven, we are with him. And I believe that the work and the life of discipleship is for us to learn how to live with confidence into that reality that is already so. To embrace that and live as though that is true to stand on that promise. I think a lot of that work of discipleship then, maybe the majority of it, is the work of overcoming fear. Thinking about how our fears lead us to disobedience and division and how all fear is ultimately the fear of death, and that death has been defeated, and so there is no longer anything to fear. We've been set free from fear. Learning that eternal life is not just a length of life, but a quality of life. We're invited then as disciples who are set free from fear to wonder whether the quality of our life, the the substance, the stuff of our life, our conversations and our actions and our sacrifices and our commitments and our longings, if all of that in our life demonstrate a God, present to the world a God, present to our families a God who offers a massive program of grace spanning from heaven to hell and from hell to heaven.
how deep does your salvation go? How high does it ascend? Pray with me, please.